He has been on the job for only one year, but this week's guest has faced a career of natural disasters. Harvey, Irma, Maria, tornadoes, floods, and yes, even lava have kept FEMA Administrator Brock Long on the go. How is he doing? What has he learned about the job? Where is FEMA headed? These questions and more from America's top emergency manager, FEMA Administrator Brock Long. Thank you for joining us. Glad to be here, Marsha. So what's it been like so far? Let's just dive in right there. I, mean, I, I, I know a lot of friends that know you and they say you're a good man, but this good man has taken on a tough job. What's it been like being FEMA administrator so far in your first year? Um, nonstop. Yeah, Never okay. a dull day. Uh, it's been truly an honor to serve my country, you know, in, in this capacity, but um, it, it's also been very difficult yeah. as well. Yeah. I mean, it, I mean, are you, you feel like you're on 24 seven in this role as, as the administrator, anything can go on at any time that you need to be aware of? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that people, most Americans don't fully um, understand or appreciate the complexity of FEMA's mission. I mean, right. one, it's got a great mission. I mean, we are totally, you know, designed to try to help people before, during, and after disasters. But the mission is more than what's typically seen on TV. So we have a very complex mission when it comes to uh, continuity of government. I mean, we're, we're in charge of ensuring continuity of government for the entire executive branch on America's worst day. So there's an element to that that's always uh, prevalent and in the back of your mind, uh, as well as trying to overcome the, the, the active disasters that we constantly see yeah we're we're weather geeks on the weather channel here in terms of the podcast and we're we're taping this on may 31st which means tomorrow is the start of hurricane season although we just saw an interesting subtropical storm alberto which became a tropical depression inland which is really interesting to us as meteorologists talk to us about what fema is doing as we gear up for the 2018 hurricane uh, season particularly in light of 2017 which i'm sure we'll get more into later as well well, right now, uh, just to put things into context, FEMA has over 690 open disasters nationwide that we continually wow. continue to work on. And a lot of people think that we, you know, they see us come in and be a part of the response phase, maybe the initial recovery, but re- recovery takes multiple years. We put a lot of grant money down to help communities rebuild after the, you know, after devastating impacts. So not only are we dealing with 690 some open disasters, uh, but we have to also be ready for anything that hits, not only whatever this hurricane season throws at us, but, you know, we have active volcanoes and you, you just saw Ellicott City as well. So we have to, we're on the go all the time. Yeah, I talked about Ellicott City. I write a column for Forbes and we talked about the sort of devastation. Now, it was interesting because all eyes were on Alberto and mm-hmm. whether it, what, it, what we were calling it, what the classification was, and then Ellicott City hits. And it just mm-hmm. shows you that nature doesn't really care what we classify it as. It's a, it's a hazard for our, our citizens. You're right. Ellicott City is a very unfortunate event. Uh, but what I think it highlights is, is that the nation really needs to double down on pre-disaster mitigation. Um, so talk, law, talk about you know, what that is. What, what do you yeah. mean by that? So, so right now, um, unfortunately, the way the, the system that FEMA has to operate in uh, based on the Stafford Act, is that a majority of mitigation funds that we provide to communities are after the fact. Uh, it's a regressive approach. You've got to get hit by a big disaster to have access to large sums of mitigation dollars. Well, I've been trying to work, and the agency's working every day with the Congress and you know others to to change that formula. How do we do more pre-disaster mitigation up front? 
uh, because we believe that one dollar spent on mitigation will reduce the impact by six dollars in the recovery, and it's yeah. smart. Yeah, this yeah. this sounds like what we talk a lot about about in uh, the National Weather Service and with weather forecasting. Yes, oftentimes it's the the models and whatnot. We know what we need to do to improve them. Uh, let's do some of that sure. prior. So. But I believe, you know, mitigation is a whole community effort. Yeah. I mean, there is no way that FEMA is going to be able to put enough money down to state and local governments to create uh, a more resilient nation. Right. Um, we're just one part of the formula. The, the real formula is, goes all the way down to the citizen. Preparedness is everybody's responsibility. But most importantly, I believe that the key to resilience lies at the local uh, local elected official level. And I, I want to talk about that because, you know, you know one of the challenges uh, from the 2017 season was certainly, you know, Harvey, Irma, Maria. I mean, we're going to talk about all of those, but I, I saw you say something in, in regards to Maria uh, in Puerto Rico and talked about how you want to build a backbone there, help to build a backbone right. there. Because here in the U.S., the continental U.S., the states, we have mm-hmm. sort of a local and state sort of backbone. And you suggested that in Puerto Rico, that's an area where you know, there's a new report that just came right. out. I'm sure you're aware mm-hmm. of it. I, mean, I know people have been talking to you about it. So I'll right. uh, give you a chance to talk about that here, the, the sort of the response there and this idea you're talking about really building up that backbone going forward. So so imagine emergency management as a four-legged stool. All right. Okay. One leg is FEMA, the other legs are the state, local governments, and then private non-governmental organizations. So FEMA, state, local, non-governmental, private organizations. Right. All right. What you saw in Texas and Florida was where that unified model all, you know, all four legs are operational, highly operational, and working together in a unified effort to overcome the impacts of Harvey or, or, or Irma. In Puerto Rico, it was different. The local level of emergency management and the Commonwealth level of emergency management basically did not exist. Right. Okay. And so, do you think? Do you think the public knows that? Because I mean, there. I mean, I don't think people really realize how. I think it, a majority of Americans do realize that, but it's not being talked about. Okay. In, in, you know, in 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 the media, I think, I think a majority of Americans are pretty level headed and and see the situation for what it is. Right. And you know, this is not a you know my, that comment's not a shot at the Commonwealth. Sure. You know, I realize as FEMA administrator that the agency's got to be able to deal with any hand of sure. cards we've been dealt. Sure. And, um, but it does, um. You know, if 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 everything's not working together in a unified effort, or if there's elements missing, the response and the recovery is never going to go as fast as people would like. Right. And you know that coupled with um, a decayed infrastructure. Right. You know, let's talk about, for example, the power grid. The power grid is one of the oldest on the globe. It was 44 years old. Um, it was not maintained. And, you know, they lost a massive amount of ability to generate power in their Palisaco plant before the storms that service San Juan. And a majority of the power has to be generated in the south of the island, pumped over 4,000 foot mountains of filled with rainforest and in. And when that system is fragile and as fragile as it is and it's wiped out, you don't turn that back on right. in a matter of days. Sure, sure. It takes a lot of work to, sure. to put that forward. Now, talk about sort of the Maria versus Harvey. Harvey was a, a significant challenge in its own right, and it's right oh. here in Texas. What, what were the challenges there from a FEMA perspective or from an emergency management perspective? Well, first of all, Harvey, Irma, and Maria were three drastically different events. That is correct. And, and intermingled in there were two of the world's uh, – the, the insurance company would say the globe's worst urban level wildfires taking place in California. Right. That coupled with the fact that we're also working disasters in 30 other states or 30 states total, um, 
you know, a lot about what went on in 2017 worked really well considering how stressed the system was. Sure. Harvey was a flood. Irma was an inland wind event uh, that exposed the need for more building codes and right. land, you know, and, um, you know, Harvey was the flood that, that exposed that any house can flood regardless if you're shown in a special flood hazard area or not. Right. You need to sit down with your private insurance agent and make sure that you calculate your risk correctly and get properly insured. Sure. Um, any house can flood. Um, and then Maria was a wind event, um, but it was a wind event where you're facing um, government liquidity issues and, and, a, and, a, and a very fragile infrastructure. Right. Every bit of it was broken. So each one of these was a different hand of cards that we were dealt, that we were having to deal with, you know, pushing forward. And, and I got to tell you, for what this agency went through, I'm incredibly proud of, you know, my agency and, and what the, you know, my staff, I mean, these guys sacrifice a lot of their personal lives to serve others and are still doing so. We yeah. have thousands in the field. Absolutely. And I yeah. want to sort of take this opportunity to, to thank all of the, the civil servants and contractors and anybody else that's working with FEMA. I've got a good friend and former classmate, Dr. Asha Tribble, that works at FEMA, and she's yeah. a really good friend of mine. And I know she was committed and on the ground. So I yeah. uh, really appreciate what you and your colleagues are doing. Uh, one of the things that really sort of, we talk about flooding in Houston uh, and, and Harvey, I've written on this many times. Do you think that people just misunderstand a flood threat as compared to, sort of, say, a wind threat from a hurricane or a tornado? Oh, I mean, people will yeah. drive through a flooded road because, man, I got to get there and get my kid from daycare. I just got to get there. I, I, I've always argued that there's just this misperception of the threat of water. Uh, well, I think there's a misperception of how hurricanes attack communities because, you know, let's face it. You know, uh, intensity and category is determined by wind speed, sure. sustained wind speed. Um, yeah. It's it's not it, you know the the category of a storm is not determined by storm surge impacts or the number of tornadoes. I think eighty percent of all landfalling hurricanes bring tornadoes with them. Exactly. Um, and then copious amounts of rainfall, which the Houston area is. Uh, has been through before. So if you remember in 2001 with Allison. Allison, yeah. Was it wasn't a tropical storm. Yeah, it, was a, it was a several billion dollar event right. that flooded as well. And that's the same thing. When a storm loses its steering currents and it, it loses its forward speed, that means different things about how the hazards are going to impact you. And it's tough to explain that in 140 characters through a tweet to the, to the American public. Right. You know, that when a storm slows down and stalls out, it's going to dump rain for days and days and days. Right. And it backs up the response. It backs up a lot of things. But I think the problem is, is that we've got to have an honest conversation going back to, I believe, that resilience is at the local level. Well, local elected officials and state officials have got to start passing building codes and they've got to start, you know, implementing proper land use planning. The built environment. Um, you know, I've seen studies and mitigation studies that would suggest that the built environment, the newly built environment, would cause roughly 30 to 31 percent of the of the flooding that we see. Yeah, I talked about that even yeah. with Ellicott City. I mean, Ellicott City is naturally has flooded many times over the last hundred years or so because of where it's geographically located to some degree. But then you've got the built environment and that changes the water cycle, increases runoff. Well, and then how well are communities actually maintaining the storm drainage systems that they sure. have? Uh, I mean, if you drive by in your community and the storm drain system is clogged with debris, yes. you need to make a phone call to your public works and you know to the city uh, to, to say this has got to come out because if the water can't drain down the systems, then it backs up and 
Right. In, we, your, in your street and your home. Well, we saw that here in the Atlanta area a couple of years ago in the downtown connector, two major interstates come together right in downtown Atlanta. And yeah. there was significant flooding there because the drains were clogged with leaves. Yeah. So it's very clear. Um, we're talking with uh, FEMA Administrator Brock Long. Uh, happy to have him here at the Weather Channel today. Um, you know, I, I want to kind of circle back because, I mean, I, I, I want to give you a fair chance to respond to a very large audience here about this new study. Have you had a chance to really talk about it? Because I know there's a lot of in window and out there on it. What, right. what Have you had a chance? I, I imagine you might not have even had a chance to really dig deep into it. It just came out. Yeah, it's been the topic of conversation. I know it and, has. And, yeah. and rightfully so. Look, sure. so, so where FEMA sits is one death is one death too many. Right. Uh, we don't want to see loss of life ever. Um, you know, I think that, um, you know, there's a discrepancy between direct deaths and indirect deaths. And so I think you know, the Harvard study, I don't know if it's valid or not. I, you know, I haven't had time to really dig into the algorithms that they use or whatever else. But I, I think it's important to point out that uh, Governor Rosselló is is on top of this, too. He he commissioned a study by George Washington University that hasn't hit yet to understand the, the true impacts and, and deaths as a result of Maria. Um, the, the next thing is, is that, you know, if this is the standard going forward, well, then you're going to have to look at every hurricane in, in, in past history that we've been you know, working on because there are always a high number of indirect deaths after events. And here's why people have heart attacks. People get on their roofs, you know, their, their roof trying to to fix it, fall off, get injured. Uh, their chainsaw accidents, you know, crime rates go up, spousal abuse goes up. There are all types of negative impacts upon citizens as a result of going through a disaster. They are stressful. That's why we, push forward being prepared on the blue sky day and we have to continue to find ways to help people be prepared from a low to no cost way to the optimal way and you know unfortunately going back to you know to the commonwealth of puerto rico here again um we forget that the deaths were caused by irma and maria two hits and a decayed infrastructure right and a decayed infrastructure fema does not have any authority or control across this country on how well a state government or local government maintains their infrastructure. And what's been lost in the conversation, and if you remember, Marshall, I had to go before Congress and ask for special authorities to put down taxpaying dollars to fix Puerto Rico because of the lack of maintenance and the deferred maintenance and the decayed infrastructure. I'm not allowed by authority to fix communities that do not maintain their own infrastructure. Welcome back to Weather Geeks. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and we're talking with the administrator of FEMA, Brock Long. Thank you for joining us, and thank you for your service to the nation as well. Thank you. Uh, You know, we've been talking about Harvey, Irma, Maria, and one of the things you mentioned to me sort of coming into the discussion uh, before we went on air is about cultural preparedness. Mm-hmm. Yep. So Tell me about what you mean by that and why do you yeah. feel it's so important? <laughs> because a, a true cultural preparedness doesn't exist in this country. And, and, and well, what do you mean by it? I, well, hope I, lo- I, I think uh, I want to understand it myself. Yep. So, so I believe that citizens are the true first responders for any simple emergency to the actions they take mm-hmm. after a devastating hurricane. Okay. Um, you know, if you look at all the active shooter events, you 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 know there there you could take a take a look at the FBI statistics that would suggest that a majority of these events end 
begin and end before first responders are on scene, which places you, the citizen, in the first response role, the true first response role. And so with that, we've got to go back to the old civil defense mindset of saying, what skills are we giving citizens to enhance them? You know, for example, the Red Cross uses this statistic all the time. One in four of us is going to have to perform CPR in our lifetime. When's the last time we've trained people on CPR, really push forward first response, you know, uh, you know, not only first aid, but then what are the tangible skills around your house? You know, how do you teach someone to simply mitigate their home, shut off water valves, gas valves, do tangible, you know, be able to take tangible actions that will, you know, help them, you know, protect their, protect themselves, lessen the impact. Uh, but then also, you know, getting them to be able to help their neighbor. Because what we saw in Harvey, what, the, what was beautiful about the response in Harvey was it wasn't just FEMA coordinating the fire, firepower of the federal government down through Governor Abbott and ultimately to the local level. A major arm of support was the non-governmental organizations and the neighbor helping neighbor. And that's what we need. We have got to prepare down through you know, from FEMA to the citizen and ultimately to be able to respond. And recover. So, so yeah. And my wife is a Girl Scout troop leader. And so they have CPR training and those types of things. So we're very aware of exactly what you're saying. So wh where did we kind of lose this sort of cultural preparedness or have we really never developed it as, as a nation? Well, I don't know. I mean, that, that might be an academic yeah, question, yeah. but you know, from where I sit as FEMA administrator, I see the impacts directly every day based on the level of assistance that we have to push out. Here's something that's amazing. In 2017, there was about in, in, in about a six month period from when Harvey hit to afterwards, we estimate that FEMA did rendered as much assistance in that six month period as the agency did in the previous decade. Wow. Okay. Wow. So the individual assistance needs are climbing, which means and individual assistance means the funding or the the services we provide to citizens to kickstart their recovery because they're in they're in bad shape. Right. We've registered over five million Americans um, you know, in individual assistance since Harvey hit. And how do we reduce that? We've got to start having honest conversations. And in some cases, one of the biggest problems that I believe is facing the United States, and if you look at the California wildfires, is asset poverty. I can't solve asset poverty. I'm not talking about people who are living in poverty. I'm sure. talking about people that are highly leveraged, that live paycheck to paycheck. If 70% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck, then our public awareness campaigns of saying, Marshall, go buy supplies for three to five days, be ready, is an unrealistic sure. financial ask. Sure. So what's the root cause of the problem? we got to solve the root cause of the problem and teach people about financial readiness and budgeting and, and form unique partnerships. Um, you know, we, I've, we, we, we've had unique conversations with John Hope Bryant, who started Operation Hope, who provides nonprofit support to helping people get on the right track with budgeting, but specifically being financially disaster ready. And, you know, I think, you know, he puts out some statistics that are pretty amazing, like, for example, if you want to wipe out civil disturbances and riots, maybe you should raise the community's, you know, average credit score above seven hundred. Well, I mean, I think and there's it goes from renters to owners. Well, I mean, I think that's right. I mean, I've, we've, yeah, you know, I think there's sort of the the poverty gaps, wealth gaps. I think those kind of you know, reducing those will solve a lot of problems in society. But yeah. we, what we saw in California is you've got. Um, for example, senior citizens living in retirement in California who paid off their mortgage and right. then let their fire insurance lapse. Well, when that happens and their home burns, yeah. then they've lost a significant, yeah. if not a majority of their net worth, right. and right. it becomes uh, a, an issue for FEMA. Right. And 
you know, one of the things too, Marshall, is there's there's this myth that FEMA can make you whole. We can't do that. So yeah. if you if you break down, you know, I also run the NFIP program, sure. the flood, flood and I, program. And I want to actually ask you about this. I'm glad right. you bring it up. So, so if you look at Harvey, Harris County, um, you know, the the University of Houston did a study in and around Harris County. It may, it may have been other areas that were impacted. You know, roughly a million homes impacted in some way, shape, or form. Many of them, eighty percent of them, were uninsured. Okay. So one eight, eight zero eighty percent eighty percent wow. is what the, if I remember correctly. So, but you need to go back and check the University of Houston study. Sure. If that's the case, then we've got to go back and t- teach people that any house can flood. You've got to, you know, you got to go back and do that. But here's the real problem: the average amount of assistance that FEMA provided in Harris County is four to six thousand dollars to get you back on your feet. Right. The average NFIP payout was one hundred and ten thousand right. dollars. So, do you want insurance or do you want FEMA? Insurance is the first line of defense. FEMA is only designed to get you back up on your feet and hopefully set you in the right direction, not make you whole. But many Americans, you know, take that chance and say FEMA will come in and 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 do this. Right. No, I I think I I agree with that. I think that if you live in a flood zone, think you live in a flood zone or as my good friend General Honoré has once said, if you can see water from your house, it might flood. So uh, get get it. Get that flood insurance. But, But but here's the thing. So one of the things that we're also doing with FEMA, something that I'm doing and being deliberate about, is changing the audience of who we, we work with. Okay, So it's, it's one thing for me to go to emergency management conferences. We'll always do that and, and you know, basically preach to the choir to sure. other emergency managers about what needs to be done. Sure. But what I'm asking is, is that we go forward and also start having real dialogue with realtors. Realtors, there are realtors in every community, multiple realtors in every community across America. So how do I tap into the realtor associations to say, hey, get your people talking about being properly insured? Look, how do you evaluate, you know, you know, evaluate a house that's been mitigated and how does that? You know, yeah. increase the value rather than decrease the value and, and starting honest conversations with realtors because they're out in every community right. dealing with the people that could become disaster survivors in the future. Right. Yeah. These are common sense solutions. I don't I don't care what your politics are, what your ideology are. I think Brock Long is offering some common sense solutions that we have to think about. And um, it's not just as I often talk about with floods and other events. It's not just what's falling from the sky when we're talking about rain or floods. It's a lot of other of these social issues that you're talking about. Okay. One um, one more uh, ta- uh, discussion point or kind of common thing happening now is talk about what's happening in Hawaii with the Hawaii. volcanic yeah. eruptions. Are, are, is FEMA, what, what's your role or purview there with something like a volcanic eruption with one of the most active volcanoes on the planet? Sure. So we, we're already providing support. Yeah. Uh, the the event was declared. You know, the, the, the governor asked, you know, put in a, a declaration request and the president approved, uh, you know, the, the declaration request that went forward. Uh, we pre-staged incident management teams and liaisons in there. But, you know, the one thing about this is, is that, while the cameras are focused on the volcanoes and it's a serious event, um, you know, this event could last six months. Right. And um, here again, you know, it boils down to uh, we're ready to provide support. You know, obviously we, we're worried about air quality. We're worried about explosions that could, that, that, that could happen. Um, but Hawaii is open for business. So, you know, they're, they're, you know it's, it's, it's impacting a small portion of Hawaii, whereas, you know, many Americans may put in their head that, 
Hawaii is not a safe place to go at this point. Obviously, you know, the areas that you shouldn't be in have been evacuated, and we're asking citizens that are being impacted by it to be ready to go at a moment's notice. But, um, you know, here's the reality um, when it comes back to local officials and land use planning. Welcome back to the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm here with FEMA Administrator Brock Long. And we've been talking about a lot of the issues of the day that FEMA deals with, that he has to deal with as the administrator. He's the nation's top emergency manager. And before we kind of move into some other aspects of what's going on with FEMA, I want to kind of sort of just kind of dig into who you are and what your experience. Why are you the FEMA administrator? And what's your experience, your background? Uh, you know, I can't answer why I'm the female. Yeah, well, I think you're uh, you know, meaning. Uh, I think meaning. Are you, yeah. I mean, you clearly you're qualified? But tell right. tell people about your qualifications. Uh, well, for me, you know, listen, it's divine intervention for me. I, I never grew up thinking I wanted to be an emergency manager. I I went to Appalachian State University for undergrad and graduate school, and while I was in graduate school, I had a, a conversation with one of my classmates who had done an internship with New Hanover County Emergency Management in Wilmington, North Carolina, and I thought, well, you know what, I got to do one. That sounds interesting. He set me up with, at the time, Dan Summers, the local emergency management director there, and I did the internship, and I, I really enjoyed it. So I physically wrote uh, cover letters and sent emails through regular mail to state emergency management agencies in states I thought I'd like to live in, and one of those was Georgia. Mm. And Georgia was the Georgia Emergency Management Agency was the first one to call me back, and they said, hey, listen, we've got this problem. We have more violent deaths in schools than any state in the country. And we started, we've passed an innovative school safety. I think it was Senate Bill 61, if I remember. We've passed an innovative school safety bill uh, that now puts Georgia Emergency Management Agency in the front seat of helping us to train and mitigate from school safety events. And Mm -hmm. I was on the ground floor with uh, some really dedicated individuals. I believe you work with my, my, my good friend, Steve Harris, Steve Harris and, the director of emergency management at Georgia, university of Georgia. That's right. Yeah. And, um, you know, and Steve and I were on the ground floor of helping to build that, the foundation of that program with others. Like there's Mike Dorn and, and several others that were involved. And that morphed into my office was in Savannah, Georgia. But what's interesting is, is that, and I tell this story from a personal standpoint, because I was the unprepared citizen when I took that job. Wow. So, when I was hired and my office was going to be in Savannah, Chatham County, which is one of the most vulnerable storm surge communities on the coast. Absolutely. I found an apartment on Wilmington Island, which is in a Cat 1 storm surge no area. Is, yes. I moved all of my belongings into that apartment and immediately drove to Atlanta because the evacuations for Hurricane Floyd were going to start the next day. Right. So I went, my first day was spent in the state operations center helping to mitigate the problems that the nation saw from Floyd, but largely one of the largest evacuations in the country's history. So it threw me right in. It seems like every time, unfortunately, I change jobs, something catastrophic happens. My first day on the job was Floyd. Uh, I interviewed with FEMA uh, the first time I worked on the morning of 9-11. I was named Hurricane Program Manager for FEMA Region 4 in 2004. We had four major hurricanes in six weeks. The next year, we had the 2005 hurricane So this is not your first stint at FEMA then? No, okay. I uh, I was there uh, again from 2001 to 2006, seven, yeah. right around in there, and uh, stepped into the private sector. Uh, I left FEMA uh, for an opportunity in the private sector after the Katrina years, and uh, within six months of stepping into the private sector, I got a call out of the blue from Governor Bob Riley in Alabama. Uh, my name had been was being considered for the state director of Alabama, and so mm-hmm. I went to Alabama and. Uh, 
right off the bat, my first year in office, uh, we dealt with the Hurricane Gustav host state evacuations. We took 13,000 evacuees out of New Orleans. I think in 2009, we had more disaster declarations than any state in the country that year. And then I got Deepwater Horizon. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. not an easy yeah. problem in its own right. Yeah. yeah Deepwater yeah. Horizon is, right. uh, for those of you that are listening, is the, um, the oil uh, spill out in the Gulf of Mexico that was a, a big problem, a multi state problem, sure. multifaceted problem. Sure. Yeah. And then, and then I was very fortunate to, uh, I met a person by the name of Steve Haggerty, who's now the mayor of Evanston, Illinois, but uh, his company, Haggerty Consulting, uh, he hired me to be the executive vice president to run his company. And I spent six years in the private end, you know, learning how to run a business, but running a consulting business that Mm -hmm. touches all facets of emergency management. And, you know, that experience was valuable to me. Uh, It helped open my eyes to the value that the private sector plays in disaster response. And we're going to be focusing on that in 2018 um, to better incorporate the private sector and not only the private sector, but the infrastructure entities. There's 16 cross-sectional interdependency infrastructure players that we've got to get better involved uh, into the national response framework. And so we're recommending to uh, the White House and others that we change the national response framework to better incorporate infrastructure and private sector more formally into our roles and not just say we have a business EOC, but really because they can provide us, the private sector can provide us, not only us, but more importantly, local governments and state governments with pre-event contract support to augment staff to help them with disaster cost recovery, managing millions and millions of dollars or billions of dollars in some cases of the funding that we put down to providing them resources. And we need them to be able to, to help bolster the whole community capability in response to recovery. So that's interesting. And this is a nice segue right into the sort of next part of the discussion here about sort of sort of the 2018 FEMA. Uh, what it looks like. Is it right-sized with more sort of uh, integration of the private sector? W- will that reduce the, reduce the, the numbers yeah. within FEMA? I, I read somewhere um, where you, you, just for example, in Puerto Rico, have recently brought on more people. So sure. uh, so what, do you, what are your thoughts on FEMA in terms of an agency, its size, and its role? Oh, how much time do we uh, have? We've got uh, probably yeah. about 10 uh, more minutes, but uh, uh, that's got a, a few question. more things I want to chat about. <laughs> so one, uh, for the agency... Um, I believe in, in, in being inclusive. Uh, I don't know all things about emergency management. And I have got 21,000 employees that know a lot about emergency management. And I deal with uh, state and local tribal leaders in private industry that know a lot about disaster response and recovery. So the first thing is coming into this job is I realize I don't know everything. So with that, we implemented what were called discovery change sessions, where I'm asking not only my staff, but our constituents of saying, where is FEMA? Where do you need FEMA to be? How do we get there? And how do we get there is, is this a legislative change or a pen stroke change from me? Is this a policy change? And we got 2,300 comments back, and we engaged in dialogue with the whole community, in my opinion. And we ran a trend analysis of all the information we collected, and we arrived at three simple but ambitious goals. One, we got to create create the true culture of preparedness. Okay. Two, we got to ready the nation for catastrophic disasters. Three, we got to reduce the complexity of FEMA. So the culture of preparedness is one thing. That's doing more pre-disaster mitigation. That's overcoming the insurance gap. That's realistically getting citizens prepared and, and giving them tangible skills to, right. to help out. Catastrophic readiness is going to be focused on the low to no notice events. I like... We do a pretty good Low job. No notice events. Talk about what you mm-hmm. mean by that. Earthquakes. Okay. Um, so just things know, for, boom, for example, right of, earthquakes, yeah. devastating tornado outbreaks, sure. different, you know, the low to no notice events, the acts of terrorism, cyber attacks, whatever it may be. Um, 
we've got to do a lot of work with the private sector on communications. Uh, our communications backbone in this country is very fragile, in my opinion. It was blown out in Maria. It was burned up in California. That causes us to lose situational awareness or makes it more difficult to respond in recovery, for example. So we're putting a new focus on continuity of government. How do we get a mayor to talk to a governor or a governor to the, the, to the White House or to FEMA when nothing seems to be working? And so we're putting a focus there. But a large part of that is, is that we're under goal two is we're rolling out what are called FEMA integration teams. It's time for my guys to be seen in all facets, all phases of emergency management, from blue sky days to the worst. And in many local communities, FEMA is only seen in recovery yeah. where, the, where the relationships are already contentious because you, the disaster survivor, has lost everything. Or right. you, the mayor, has, feels like you're, you know, you're, you're being beat down because right. your community has been impacted. We've got to change the dialogue. So we're putting people in the field full time and we're phasing this approach out. I hope to have 10 states uh, by the end of the year and then all 50 states by the end of two to three years out. Wow. And, you know, pushing that out. And, and my people want to be in the field. They're happiest there. But we have a dialogue of we're going to plan, train, exercise, and execute together every day. Right. Every day. Not just be seen when the major disaster declaration comes down. And we're going to put forward efficiencies. We're going to approve mitigation plans quicker. We're going to do things quicker rather than having to go all the way back up to D.C. Because I don't believe all the decisions need to be made in D.C. for FEMA. Right. Or, or even in the region. I think a lot of what we do could be made at the local level with the right person that's trained. And so, and then finally, the third goal, reduce the complexity, is all about how do we streamline disaster survivor experience and the, the amount of grants that we push out uh, down from the systems that we use, the software systems. How do we get it down to one system that cuts across all grants to how do we reduce the knocks on your door, Marshall, if you're uninsured and you've lost everything, you know, you know, you pretty much lost everything. We estimate that, you know, from the whole community, a person could get 16 or 17 knocks on the door from the federal government, state government, local government, and NGOs. we got to get it down to one knock, one knock and be efficient across the federal government when we do inspections and different right. things. So a lot is changing. Right. A lot is changing. Now, many of our listeners may not realize the structure. I, you know, I, I, I was at NASA for 12 years before coming to the University of Georgia, and um FEMA, like NASA, I believe, I mean, how is FEMA structured in terms of an agency? Is it an independent agency? Is it underneath the uh, Homeland Security? I believe it's under Homeland Security. We're, we're with Homeland Security. Right. So we're, we're the, one of the components under Homeland Security, yeah. but it's a unique. So uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, I work with Secretary Kirsten Nielsen, and, and um, you know she she's a very dynamic leader inside the Department of Homeland Security, I have, and she knows a lot about our business. So this is one where it's it's a it's a healthy relationship for us because she understands a lot about emergency management, and um, and she was also in the private consulting arena, particularly in cybersecurity, but but in the emergency management realm before taking the position in Homeland Security. So there it's a seamless relationship. We go to Homeland Security for a lot of the day to day policy and operational issues. Now. PCMRA, the Post-Katrina Emergency Management Reform Act, does give me the authorities to go directly to the to the President of the United States for, for disasters in some cases. But um, it's all about unity of effort and clear lines of communication. Uh, FEMA has roughly 21,000 employees, and that's a mix. That's full-time employees to disaster reservists that we have out in the field. It's, it's almost like our reservists are almost like our version of the Army's National sure. Guard. Okay. Um, we got a lot of work to do to change that, um, you know, and in some cases, what we've got to do is change the footprint. In, in, in many cases, I believe that we roll too many staff 
out for smaller disasters, uh, which puts a stress on the entire system. So we're having honest dialogue with state and local governments. And if you look at 80% of the disasters that we face are on average less than $41 million events. Wow. So how do I become a granting authority agency for the $41 million event and less and reduce my footprint in the field for those smaller disasters so that when the nation calls upon us for the Harvey, Irma, Maria wildfires and volcanoes at the same time, we're ready to go. Right. And right. so I'm shifting the culture of, you know, our response out in the field and uh, when, it, when it comes to that. So there's a lot a lot of change. Yeah, so a lot of change. You're in, you know, I appreciate the, what you're doing there. They're kind of wrapping this up, I want to kind of ask you one or two quick questions to just get your thoughts on what is your – from a wet, we are weather geeks here with the Weather Channel. Mm-hmm. What is sort of your worst case scenario from a weather standpoint, or do you have one? Look, a uh, major hurricane into New Orleans yeah. is absolutely uh, going to be devastating again. Yeah. And I don't uh, want the citizens of New Orleans and Louisiana to put their guard down because the levee was rebuilt after Katrina. It was made by man. It can be compromised by by Mother Nature in a heartbeat. Sure. And um, you know, that event, and we, we've had uh, a lot of dialogue with Governor John Bell Edwards, who's a very progressive governor down in Louisiana that, that understands emergency management as well as the new Mayor Cantrell in New Orleans. And, and uh, that's always on my mind. Um, you know, but there's so many scenarios. Look, New Madrid, um, here again, you know, what we're trying to put forward is every community, for example, should have the ability to do provide water, ice, and hygiene kits or medical, you know, kits to their citizens because FEMA's not a first responder. And if New Madrid unlocks, the yeah. bottom line is we don't just show up immediately after with all of this capability to be able to put forward. It takes time to put things into motion. Right. So we've got to do a better under, you know, better job of building out the capabilities of the entire community. And we need citizens to realize that FEMA cannot do it all. It, it, it also is, is on them. But, um, you know, we're trying to incorporate... Um, outcome-driven recovery as well. So, for example, in the past, a lot of what we have done is put things back to the pre-disaster condition because that's what the authorities allowed. Well, because of Sandy Improvement, we now have what's called um, the 428 program to where we can actually do build-in resilience into the recovery effort. I can sit down and say, Governor... You know, we're going to, you know, estimates, we estimate 40 billion or 50 billion going into Puerto Rico. Let's design it up front. What is the goal? What is your vision to make Puerto Rico more, more resilient or Texas or Florida or wherever? And we start incorporating sea level rise or, you know, other things, you know, changing climates into uh, the future, uh, the, the future infrastructure that we're rebuilding. Right. And yeah, so that's that's something else. That well, I'm I'm, I'm glad to hear you mention that about resiliency and sort of preparing for risk from changing climate sea level, whether it happens or not. I mean, I guess I talked to Bob Inglis, a good conservative colleague of mine, that says the risks prepare preparing for the risk is important, uh, irrespective of your belief. Now, I want to wrap this up, but I just want to say, I mean, I I have a lot of good friends in the emergency management business uh, and meteorology: Keith Stellman, National Weather Service; mm-hmm. Robbie Westbrook here in Georgia; Steve Harris, who you heard mentioned earlier. And when Brock Long was appointed or, or nominated for this position, I, I reached out. I said, who is Brock Long? I mean, because I'm, I'm a stakeholder, former EMS president, so I wanted to know who you were. And to a man or to a person, everyone said, he's he's one of us. He's an emergency manager. He's a good guy. Craig Fugate told me the same thing. Yeah. So uh, I just want to thank you for joining us today. And, um, you know, if any final thoughts you want to say to the nation? No, I really appreciate it. And um, here again, you know, FEMA is going to do everything that it can to be 
prepared to 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 support your communities on their worst day. Yeah. Um, but here again, we can't do it all, and we depend on citizens to uh, sit down, take some time, figure out how to be financially prepared, properly insured, or even just how you're simply going to communicate with your family and loved ones yeah. uh, for various types of hazards. Yeah. Um, yeah. We do care. My guys are dedicated. They're out in the field. They they sacrifice a lot of their their personal lives to save others and and to help others. And we're going to continue to to support those that have been through the 2017 disasters as best we can to to rebuild their communities. But here again, yeah, yeah. this is a partnership. Yeah, it's a, it's a partnership. It's and a partnership. make sure everyone's following FEMA on Twitter and in social media and at Brock Longs. I know you're out there on yeah. Twitter and you got an account and ready.gov. There, there are a lot of resources that we as citizens need to be um, accountable for too at the federal, state, and local levels. Thank you for joining us Thank you, on Marsh. Weather Geeks. Thank you, Brian. All right. Thanks. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.